Oscar Wilde once said, There is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. Though he was advising Dorian Gray, Wilde could quite easily have been instructing the pursuit of the publicist, an essential role in the promotion and marketing tools of events and entertainment in the publicity machine, making us aware, engaged and informed. For over 30 years, Ian Phipps has worked in a variety of capacities communicating a product. He has served stints as publicity manager at SBS Television, Marketing Manager of Riverside Theatre's Parramatta, Publicity and Promotions Manager of the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, and since 2009, Navigation of his own promotions and publicity house, IP Publicity. It is a role demanding enormous energy, strategy and an awareness of all platforms and how they might best service the client. Large-scale productions and high-profile artists benefit from Ian's management of media communications and creativity in guiding public awareness. Publicity and promotions are another intriguing facet of our arts industry. Ian provides great insight to his process and shares some delightful tales from his extensive experience as a publicist, working with creatives, media and the audience. Just lead the way, Peter. You're, you're an old pro anyway, doing um, Delroy's Radio. Yeah, late line. For 26 for years. 26 years? Mm. I didn't realise it was that long. Mm. 26 years. As a, an entertainment reporter. When he, have we started? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. When he first got the program, uh, he rang me because I I knew him, you know, from around the traps, and said, "Listen, I've got this new program on the ABC, on Two BL or whatever it was back back in the day, uh, and I need a film reviewer. And you go to the movies a lot. I know you like movies. Do you want to do it?" And I said, "Oh yeah, all right." And so started doing it one day a week, and then it became twice a week, uh, doing DVDs and stuff like that. And then when I'd go to opening nights, or I'd be in Melbourne to see something, I'd report in, or the opening of the Helpman, you know, night of the Helpmans, I'd ring in and say this is one and all that sort of stuff. So it just sort of grew like topsy, and it, in the end, it was twenty six years. Well, you're quite accomplished, I guess. You hadn't done any radio or no that sort of no coverage. I did a course at the Australian Film, TV and Radio School when I was working there in radio and that was a, a long after I'd started with Delroy because I thought, well, I really should get a few tips about this. But pretty pretty much it was Delroy and I just having a chat like we do at his place for a dinner party or whatever and there happened to be a microphone in between us. So it, it, I never felt like I needed to learn anything and I feel like I'm somebody who can explain things pretty well. Um, I've got common sense, and so I can put things together into words, and it just worked. So your, job's all, your job is all about the written word and the spoken word too, isn't it? And it is. And making communication as effective as possible to an audience. Yeah, it is. And also thinking you know, nuts and bolts for a publicist, which journalist is going to be interested in this idea and coming up with ideas and matching the ideas and the the... the the actor or the director or whoever with a particular media outlet and journalist who I think will work well together and come up with a good story. It's a pretty dreadful time for the arts, well, not necessarily the arts, the world at the moment, isn't it, Mm. with the arrival of the coronavirus. I assume your work as a publicist is all sort of ground to a halt. It was bizarre. In Within about two days, I went from having about 20-odd productions either on or in pre-production, to zero. 
uh, the big shows, the small shows, the tours that were happening in two or three months all either got delayed or cancelled. So it's been quite bizarre. And I, I would imagine I'm not going to get any income for maybe six months. Uh, the two girls that work for me um, have taken holidays and then they're on leave without pay. Uh, hopefully they'll be back later in the year. But, you know, it's all up in the air at the moment. It's, it's a bizarre existence. It's a huge industry, isn't it? You know, you, the cancellation of just those 20 shows that you're working on. And of course, there's many more that happen all around the country in any particular week. But the, the, the flow-on effect, the domino effect for the many other um, co-workers yeah. Is, yeah. is huge, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, me as a publicist, lost all my work. The marketing agency that I work with a lot, most of their, their staff have been put off or put on half pay and they have no shows. So therefore, they're not selling advertising or doing any marketing. So their they're they're, all their staff are going. Uh, arts journalists, for instance. Um, some of them I know were asked to take leave because they had nothing to write about and the arts pages are diminishing. Uh, City Morning Herald has dropped shortlist for the time being uh, because there's no cinemas open, uh, concerts and things like that. Uh, yeah, it's bad time for arts journalists. All sorts of areas, have the unexpected areas that you think uh, wouldn't be touched are being touched. As well as all those crews that work inside theatre houses and front of house yeah. as well ushers and program sellers and exactly and all those sort of people in times when they're not working would probably go and work in hospitality or other areas and there's no jobs in those areas because they're all contracting so the people who are you know actors who might teach or do other things when they're not working can't do those jobs at the moment so everybody's stuck we we have no idea how long this um pandemic is going to go on but um coming out of it at the other end is is probably going to be a huge challenge for us all isn't it i think so for a number of reasons because you can decide you're going to put a show on but then you've got to market and publicize it and so that there's a bit of a lag time there uh audiences i don't think are going to have much money for quite a while you know so many people have lost their jobs and they're not going to have confidence to spend any money because they'll think perhaps uh, this is going to go on, I need to keep some money for Christmas, I need to keep some money for something else, so I'm not going to spend any my discretionary income on theatre tickets for quite a while. I think it'll be at least 12 to 18 months before we start getting a lot of the big shows back and people buying tickets. And we can't even say it's like, you know, those periods of trauma of the Depression and the Great War when, when audiences flock to the theatre for escapism. Exactly, because the theatres aren't open, the cinemas aren't open. Uh, people can't get, gather together in groups for entertainment. So, yes, it is a very different time. So what happens to the, uh, the infrastructure of those shows that were on tour or had just opened in theatres? And mm. that's uh, a short amount of time where they have to get out and... Yeah, it varies. Um, things like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory had just done its uh, dress rehearsal on the Sunday night in Brisbane when they were told that uh, theatres could only have 500 people. So therefore it's postponed and the set, everything is, costumes, everything's still sitting there in the Lyric Theatre at QPAC in case at the end of this pandemic it can pick up where it, it left off. So it's postponed. A lot of other shows are, are postponed, like 9 to 5. Uh, the creatives had to come in from overseas, but of course they would have had to go into two weeks quarantine, theatres are closed, all that sort of stuff. That's off until and God knows when. 
Um, but yeah, I think the American creatives were coming in for Moulin Rouge as well to sort of have a look at final casting. Final casting, so they can't do their final casting then as well. Yeah, yeah. things like um, a Hay show, Bridges of Madison County, just closed. That set's still in there, but other things uh, like Shrek in Melbourne closed and they bumped out and packed up because that is not going to continue on for a Brisbane season and so on. So it, every show was slightly different, I think. Um, We'll wait and see what happens when, mm. when it all stops. Thanks for that insight. It's uh, a lot of stuff that we hadn't really ever thought about until, mm. you know. And marketing-wise, you know, uh, advertisers, the advertising company had placed advertising for the next few weeks. And so some of those that were able to pull back and get the money back, others had to run or cancelled. You'll lose the money for the advertising you'd already paid and so on. So, yeah, there's a lot of flow-on effects. And in this country, you know, the, the commercial theatre, um, it, it has its regular punters, but you think of it, um, uh, places like the West End and Broadway, which rely solely on a tourist mm. flow. Um, and the Sydney Opera House relies on tourism. Yeah, they absolutely. always say, you know, 30 to 40% of tickets are sold for, for tourists. And so in October, no, uh, September, October, uh, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish is still due to be in there, produced by John Frost and... Uh, the Opera Australia, Opera Australia. Uh, we still don't know what's going to happen there but those overseas creatives are going to come in and you would expect 30 to 40% of those tickets to be sold to international tourists well we may not have any tourism for a number of years so that's another factor that they will consider before they decide whether that will continue or be postponed or whatever it's a horrible thought, isn't it? Sort of, mm. don't know when the next time we'll see a show on Broadway. Yeah, exactly. Able to get there to see it. I was booked in for September, so, you know, those tickets are on hold and we'll wait and see what happens. What's the last show you saw in Sydney before everything closed? Uh, the last show I saw was an ATYP show called Cusp at the Stables Theatre, which was a terrific show. Unfortunately, that was only on for 10 days, but they had to cut it short. Uh, before that, Everybody, uh, which was interesting um, indie show at the King's Cross Theatre and the night before that was Bridges of Madison County opening night uh, so that were the last three shows I saw in one week because normally I go to the theatre sort of three four five nights a week so it's quite disconcerting not to have things to do at night do you go um, in your role as a publicist to check out what's happening in the in the city or are you just passionate about seeing live theatre I go for, for many reasons. I've yeah. always gone to the theatre a lot. Um, I, I'm invited for a lot of things because I'm a publicist and also because I did review on Tony Delroy's late night show on the ABC, uh, occasionally theatre, mostly film and, and DVD. And these days, if I see a few things that I like, I'll hop on the uh, overnight program on the weekends with Rod Quinn, who's a mate, and talk about a few things there. But, but also because I started the Sydney Theatre Awards 15 years ago, um, when I left being chairman of Griffin after 14 years, Griffin Theatre Company wasn't getting, I thought, the recognition it deserved for the productions that it, it, it was putting on. It wasn't getting Helpman Awards and so on, and they were the only awards for theatre. So I left uh, being chairman of Griffin and started the Sydney Theatre Awards, getting 
critics from a number of newspapers and places together. Uh, and at that stage, I was still reviewing ABC Radio and so on. And so I still get invited to a lot of uh, productions because I coordinate the, the critics and arrange the Sydney Theatre Awards. Right. I was going to talk about the Sydney Theatre Awards a bit later, but, but it's, oh. it's brought up now. So let's talk about that. I didn't realise that you had instigated the awards. Yes. As I said, when I left Griffin... Um, there were no awards for Sydney Theatre. There had been a previous group of the Sydney Theatre Critics Circle that disbanded when a few of them weren't getting on and a lot of acrimony and it, it disbanded. So there weren't any Sydney Theatre Awards for probably about 10 years. Because Melbourne has the Green Room Awards, don't That's they? That's right. Yeah. Brisbane has the Matilda Awards and I know Adelaide has something else. I can't remember what they are. but um, Which makes sense because, you know, like Broadway and the Tony Awards, it's, it's a certain uh, region which is being adjudicated. Exactly. And the Helpmans have been knocked quite a few times because people can't actually physically get to see everything across the, the breadth of the country. So people have queried the legitimacy of the voting of that. So I started the Sydney Theatre Awards and I, um, I had been talking to Colin Rose, who was at that time the reviewer for the Sun-Herald. Uh, Diana Simmons from the, the um, Sunday Telegraph at the time. We got together with Bryce Hallett and Stephen Dunn and John Shan from the Sydney Morning Herald, John uh, McCallum from The Australian. And it was a small group to start with. We started in the basement of the State Theatre in the Statement Bar. Uh, the very first year, Kate Blanchett um, had been in something and I asked her to be a presenter at the awards and she said sure so that sort of gave us a bit of profile in our first year 15 years ago um, and then it's just sort of grown exponentially since then and as some critics have dropped off others have joined and it's we meet a couple of times a year the middle of the year to look at everything that's opened in the first half of the year and whenever any of the critics see things that they think are worthwhile and others should see. We all email each other and I jot down potential nominations during the year. We meet at the end of the year to do our voting. Um, we moved from the Statement Bar after two years to the Pado RSL, which was a really interesting experience. Uh, and that really worked for us because it created the atmosphere that I wanted, the sort of the community feel, everybody in the one room. And to have in one year Angela Lansbury, James Earl Jones and Barry Humphreys there to get the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Paddington RSL I think is something that can't be matched. <laughs> um, and then Paddo RSL, we gradually grew out of that and we're now at the Seymour Centre, usually at the York Theatre because we were just too big and it was too packed in for people to sit around for 90 minutes or even stand up for 90 minutes or nearly two hours to go through those awards. So. But it does attract great legitimacy because that judging panel is seeing everything uh, that's that's on in, the, in this region of Sydney. Yeah, it is. Um, and so, yes, I think the, the awards are respected because of that. Uh, people in the industry know that these people have seen all of the potential uh, nominated shows and so it does have legitimacy. Things are changing a bit, though, because as arts journalism is changing over time uh, and there are a lot more things to see. I had actually started a bit of a new panel this year 
uh, which isn't going to get going for a while. It'll probably have to get put on till next year. And we've invited a representative from each of the mainstream companies to go to all the indie shows and be on the indie panel because often it's the indie ones that people find it hard to get to. And so I'm trying to build it and strengthen the awards. We got knocked last year because we didn't give an award for children's or young people's theatre. And that's a fair criticism because we've always tried to cover that that area as well. But when we sat down to vote last year, nobody on the panel had seen all the shows in that area. And some people had seen a couple and some people had seen others. And we just couldn't legitimately come up with an objective uh, vote in that area. So we couldn't award it. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why I'm starting to look at other ways of bolstering the critics to continue it and to continue the reputation of people who are seeing all the shows and therefore it's a legitimate, credible vote. The night is a great celebration too because it's free of charge and the industry can go along and, and support. I, I don't suppose you get a lot of funding for the, for the event either. Yeah, you're relying on the the goodwill of of people like the Seymour Centre. Yeah, we are. The Seymour Centre gives us the theatre at a charity rate, which is 50% of the normal rate. Um, But there are the costs of theatre hire, of uh, printing the certificates that people get, uh, framing the certificates, um, you know, a bit of design, a bit of this, a bit of that. And I like to give some of the performers who are spending a lot of time to to work on their pieces that are performing 50 bucks to buy their own drinks and things like that so we have a budget of about ten thousand dollars uh and thankfully the the seaborne broughton and walford foundation gives us a grant each year i have to apply and acquit that grant and so on but up until now yes they've been very generous uh and that's paid for the awards right the great oscar wilde once said that um, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about Is there such a thing as bad publicity? Yes, there is. There is? Absolutely. Um, You know, I've been through lots of issues uh, where actors and performers have got into trouble and we've had to deal with that, you know, bad press for for those people Mm -hmm. and it has had consequences for the shows that... People have decided they didn't want to see it. Ticket sales have dropped, uh, all sorts of things. Um, you know, we get bad reviews for shows sometimes. Uh, you know, recently I can think of one particular show that had scathing reviews and ticket sales dropped dramatically. And so we had to go back and say, well, really should we have invited the critics? If you suspect that you're not going to get re- good reviews, do you want to invite critics? Um, yes, there are particular things that have happened that I can honestly say (laughs) not all publicity is good publicity do do the critics have that much sway nowadays do do people i mean how does how does the gp how does the punter sort of access a lot of reviews now unless they're sort of through blogs and and, Mm. and fans of of those sort of reviewers um is is word of mouth the big seller word word of mouth has always been and will always be yes you know hearing from mrs smith over the back fence that she and five friends went to a show the other night and loved it is probably the best form of advertising you can get but still depending on the show and depending on the audience for that show reviews will have an effect um i think for hayes theater shows for example it's probably an older audience and they want to see what the sydney morning herald had to say often before they buy their tickets and same for a uh, you know some 
you know, Sydney Theatre Company and, and other shows, uh, if it's a bad review, yes, you will expect that you'll lose some ticket sales. Uh, these days, I think people will, you know, throw the, show, the name of the show into Google and reviews will come up. You might get uh, the higher rated things like Time Out or Sydney Morning Herald and other others come up and if they're not good reviews people might decide to spend money elsewhere because they have an awful an awfully large range of shows they can go and see and if reviews for one show aren't so good they'll probably go to and see something else. Fipsy, when we were younger you'd get the weekend paper, the Sunday paper, you'd open it up to the art section and there'd be this ads and lists of what was on and what you'd like like to go and see but with the decline of print media now how do people find out what's on i mean is it is it all online now the way that you connect with a prospective audience uh yes uh there are databases every theater has a database ticketmaster's got a database and so on i think people rely on receiving emails so they know what's on uh, so I think probably most of the people who are listening to this will be on the databases of all the theatres that they've been to, all the ticketing agencies they've bought tickets to and so on. And that's the way we find out about things. Um, public, you know, I'm sort of doing myself out of a job by saying that in a way, but to publicise shows as well as that, People need information about that show. They need to uh, have an idea of what it's about, which you don't, may not get from uh, a Ticketmaster EDM or so on. So you will still need to have articles written about that show in the Sydney Morning Herald, Time Out, Limelight, all sorts of places. For me as a publicist, that, um, you know, every week I get a, a new blog or a new uh, website saying, oh, I'm now a theatre reviewer, I want free tickets and I want to interview, you know, X, X actor. And so I've got to decide, is that worth it? Are, your, are enough people reading that or should I go, should I give you an actor who isn't as well known, for example, for an interview uh, and keep the star act star names for more widely read publications but uh, people are getting their information from a whole diverse places they find out about shows I think from EDMs and then when they need more information to decide whether they want to go see it they need to read all those other publications I imagine as a publicist you've got to find the selling point for any particular show sometimes it's the show itself Book of Mormon War Horse Sometimes it's the the profile, the actors who are, yep. are leading the company. Mm-hmm. Um, what's easier to sell generally, the the show or using the the performers in it as a hook? Because sometimes people will just go to see an Anthony Waller, regardless of what the show is. Yeah, true. Um, again, it depends on the show, and it depends on who the audience is. Uh, an Anthony Waller show, uh, I'm going to arrange a few interviews with him because people will want to hear from him about what that show's going to be and perhaps hear a taste of the music and so on, so they're confident to buy the tickets. For things like The Book of Mormon, that is a really difficult show to publicise because it has different rules to to everything else. For the first few years of that show, the actors weren't allowed to do any interviews because the show was the star. And uh, we were lucky that Matt and Trey came out for the opening of Melbourne. So, you know, I, was, I, I got them on every TV show, radio show, newspaper, blog, everything, ever known to man. And that sort of started it off. But from then on, 
There were no interviews, no publicity. And for a publicist, that's a really tough thing to do for media to contact me and say, and ask for a fabulous potential interview. And I have to say, sorry, nobody's available. As uh, the years went on and we went to uh, Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, um, we were allowed to start using cast and they over those couple of years had built their profile as well from all the people that would come and see them at stage door and knew the show so uh so we started to use the cast then but yeah every show was different uh sometimes uh, a show coming from broadway say wicked when uh first opened wicked um we amanda harrison and lucy durack weren't very well known Uh, Rob Guest was well known. A couple of the others were, but um, but the two girls weren't well known. So we sold it on the show, and like six at the moment, people knew the music from Broadway and from the West End, and so uh, the show was the star. But then gradually, the stars became the stars, and they were used a lot more. So it, it depends, but. It is tough for a publicist not to have talking heads to deal with. Um, it's always great to have stars who media's media want to talk to. It's extraordinary how those shows have become stars. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, the kids at school are all listening to Dear Evan Hansen, mm. and um, it was the same with Legally Blonde. They didn't necessarily know the creatives involved, but yep. they just were immediately engaged with the score. Same with Six. Yeah, and it's fascinating how that happens, that... You know, something starts in a small theatre in Edinburgh and then comes to the UK and suddenly every girl of a certain age around the world knows those songs. Uh, the, the power of the internet these days, uh, you know, everything is international. So, yeah, Six is a really interesting case study of something that's built and the cast aren't known. It's it's sold on Six. It, what a brilliant idea for a show. Mm-hmm. You know, the Six Wives of Henry, Henry VIII in like a, a, a singing contest between the six of them. Um, and the show is the star. It's fascinating to see how with things With develop. a great nod to Spice Girls or yeah. Beyonce and Destiny's Child. Yeah, yeah. Great exactly. Hook. Great mm-hmm. hook. Ian, let's have a look at your the pathway to, to IP publicity, where, where you now reign. Um, are you a Sydney boy? Yep, Sydney born and bred. I uh, was uh, born at Paddington Women's Hospital, when there was a Paddington Women's Hospital. Right. And uh, we lived in Rose Hill, went to Rose Hill Public School uh, till I was 11. I started school when I was four, actually, because mum had four kids under five years old. Wow. And I wasn't the easiest child, I'm told, uh, biting my sister and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So in the third term, because there were three terms back then, uh, they pleaded with Rose Hill Public School to take me, and so I went to school when I was four four years old. Uh, And then I was a year ahead from then on, and then when we finished, uh, when I finished sixth year, sixth year what it year was six year back then at rose hill uh, school i was only 10 years old and so i went to barella opportunity school for a year and repeated sixth class and then my family moved to wollongong uh, dad was a tech college teacher and principal and they had to do country service in those days and wollongong was counted as country so we um we packed up and me and my at the time uh one sister and two brothers. There was another sister arriving later. Went to Wollongong and I started at Wollongong High School. It was um, 
a selective school back then. It wasn't the performing arts high school that it is now. Mm. And her family are basically still in Wollongong. Uh, I came up here to go to uni and just stayed in Sydney and so, you know, been in Sydney ever since. What was your first experience of theatre? I was about four or five years old. I have a vivid memory of going to the old Tivoli in Sydney and I can remember two different pantos. One was The Wizard of Oz with Reg Livermore but the one I remember, and I think that was the first one, was Alice in Wonderland. And I can remember that because I was sitting on an aisle in the stalls and a guy called Michael Body, who was an actor and playwright and must have been 16 stone, was playing the Queen of Hearts. <laughs> and he was coming down the aisle behind me. And I can remember being terrified that he was going to sit on me because I was on the aisle. And I was probably four years old. And... I, I still have that distinct memory. It's quite bizarre. And I remember that. And I can, I've got images of that show in my head from the, the stage of that and The Wizard of Oz. Uh, so that was my first theatre experience. First of many. Mm, first of many, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did the family uh, go to the, uh, the theatre frequently? Not really. No. Um, didn't have a, an artsy sort of family at all. I don't know why we went to the TIV. I suppose it was a panto, so that's what people did in those days. Uh, yeah, I used to love the theatre and go to movies. I can remember, you know, Mum took the, the family to uh, to Dumbo and to um, The Sound of Music when it first came out in, in movies and things like that. So I think we, as a family, used to go to the movies, but we didn't necessarily go to the theatre. That was something that I developed an interest in myself. So was a career in the arts always on your agenda? Ever since I was very, very young, if people asked me what I wanted to be, I'd say either an actor or a television personality. I think I wanted to be Brian Henderson because right. he was on the television and used to host and, and that sort of stuff. And that's what I always wanted to do. And then when I got into high school, I started a drama club at Wollongong High and I started a film club. And I would run bus trips up to the original uh, uh, Rocky Horror Show. We went to Jesus Christ Superstar and so on as those clubs uh, to try and raise funds and stuff like that. Um, so I knew at that stage that's what I wanted to get into. But when I left school, everybody, parents and everybody said, oh, no, you know, bad idea. You need something to fall back on. <laughs> Haven't we heard that before? Haven't we yeah. all heard that before? Yeah. So, uh, so I got into medicine because I got a very high, um, you know, percentage at school. I never really needed to study at school. Uh, I can always remember that in sixth form, I'd do my homework and then I'd, I loved Agatha Christie murder mysteries. And every night I would start one after I finished my um, my homework at sort of. Eight, eight or nine o'clock and I'd read a whole book and then go to bed at sort of one o'clock I didn't study a lot but you know I, I was lucky in that I remembered things very well and so I got into medicine uh, and um, coincidentally stayed at a hostel in South Coogee in my first year called Endeavour Hostel and Phil Quast uh, was starting NIDA at the same time and I can remember uh, he was staying there for three months when he first got into NIDA and he would sing in the shower and I'd sometimes walk past the shower and w stand there and listen to him singing in the shower. 
coincidence. Because he was um, a country boy too. He was, a, he was yeah. yeah, from Tamworth, Gyra, I think, yeah. Tamworth up here. Uh, so, yes, I did medicine. And I started to go out to the theatre a lot more. Um, I'd go home to Wollongong. And I loved the drama of medicine. Uh, from my first year on, I'd go up to... You wanted to be in The Young Doctors. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I did a couple of episodes did of The Young Doctors. We'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah. But uh, I'd go up to Wollongong Hospital as a first and second year medical student on a Friday and Saturday night because I'd go home and stay in Wollongong for the weekend. And uh, I would see patients, which you know still blows my mind that as a you know 19 year old kid i was going to see patients and i'd go with the doctors and so on and then the nurses were fantastic to me and they taught me so much uh but i love the drama of work of of being in casualty as it was called then um the emergency department with things coming in you know i can remember a, a shotgun and you know all, all sorts of things and the uh the ambulance would be going down crown street outside the hospital and the nurses would ring up and say what's going on oh okay and we get ready for that and i would um I would give people injections and uh, Miriam, who was a friend of, became a friend of mine, who was running the maternity ward at night, rang me one night and said, oh, we're having a baby, you know, somebody's having a baby, wanted to come up, on up. And, you know, I took part in that and did all these amazing things. I love the drama of the medical world. But as I got into medicine, I all these interesting people I started in first year with became corporatized doctors and the ward work I didn't find as interesting and I would be going to the theatre a lot and I, I had to repeat uh, one year because I failed biochemistry because I was bored with biochemistry. I wanted to be at the theatre and so on. So gradually I realised that this wasn't the world I wanted to be in and if I kept going, I would never get out of it because it was a job you needed to keep learning and stay up to date with and so on. So after four and a half years... I went to the Dean of Medicine and said, I'm, I'm going to leave because I want to try being an actor. And he tried to convince me uh, to stay. He said, we've spent $60,000 on your education so far, all that sort of stuff. And I said, no, no, I really have to get out. So uh, I started doing acting classes with um, Malcolm Frawley and, and others. And then I st uh, started uh, doing a, a few things. I did a couple of plays. I did, as I said, uh, a couple of episodes of The Young Doctors. And I'll always remember being on a gurney um, as somebody who um, was a pa I was a patient there, non-speaking role. And whoever was playing the young doctor you know giving putting it in a drip i i said no that's not how you do a drip this is how you do it and i taught him how to how to put in a drip and so on so i remember a bit of the young doctors but after a couple of plays i thought i'm actually not really good at this i'm not a good actor and i'd started putting up posters and working in the box office for the sydney theater company and I was in the world that I wanted to be in, that world of theatre. And ever since then, I've just been offered jobs. I've never really applied for jobs. I've been offered them. And coincidentally, it's just sort of meandered along and ended up where I am. Well, it's terrific awareness there to think that, hey, uh, medicine's not for me. And then to re recognise that perhaps I'm not as good an actor as I would like to be. And, hmm. and then to seek other avenues in the arts to... Um, to contribute to yeah i think you know it was pretty obvious to me after a few months that i wasn't a great actor but luckily i 
was working in the world that I wanted to be in. And yeah, I've always thought that if you're open to, uh, to offers and you grab opportunities when they arise, you will end up where you're supposed to be. That, you know, the world will show you the path you're supposed to be on. Well, it's been a fascinating path starting in the box office at STC and subscriptions at Opera Australia. Yep. And then uh, the subscriptions manager left at Nimrod. Nimrod had just moved to the Seymour Centre. And so I applied for that job. Penny Ramsey with the GM, she interviewed me and um, I got the job and um, Denny Hines and a guy called Northwood and a couple of others were my staff. And we did subscriptions and box office there. We were slightly separate to the box office at the Seymour Centre, but Barb and Patty, the legendary women that run the box office for years at the Seymour Centre, taught me a lot about that. And at that time, our publicist for Nimrod, Bob Evans, left to become the uh, critic for the Sydney Morning Herald. And they looked around for a publicist and couldn't find anybody. And I said, well, that couldn't be very hard. I'll do it. Because uh, I'd always been interested in it. I can remember when I worked at Sydney Theatre Company, um, Carol Ray's daughter was the publicist, Harriet, I think it was Harriet A. Smith, or Sally, Harriet A. Smith. And I was interested in her job and she told me a bit about it. So I said, well, I can do that as well as subscriptions because, you know, we don't have, we only have six shows a year or seven, whatever it was. Uh, so I became the publicist and they brought in Judith Johnson, who had been the publicist for Nimrod Theatre Company for, for years and had gone out on her own to sort of teach me the game. So what was your understanding of what a publicist did at that particular stage? I knew that a publicist arranged newspaper articles, radio interviews and so on about shows. And they worked with the actors and people who were and creatives in those shows and that was the area that I loved doing you know working in a box office for theatre was great but it wasn't working with the creative people and that's what attracted me to the, to this world and so um, yeah Judith taught me that and I did the first few shows you know the resistible rise of Arturo Ui I think was my first show on my own as a publicist directed by Richard Werrett starring John Gayden with a host of fabulous actors of you know John Gayden and I can't remember you know some fabulous but people fabulous, yeah. fabulous people and then uh, Richard Cottrell came in to direct Arms and the Man that starred Maggie Dents and Jane Harders and they became great mates and uh, so I did that for a while, but then Nimrod was closing up for a while. Um, uh, John Bell and, uh, and Aubrey Miller were leaving as artistic directors. Richard Cottrell was coming in. It was changing, so they weren't going to need a publicist for six months or so. So uh, I, I went back to Judith Johnson and worked in her office. I was her first employee for a long time, and basically she was my mentor and taught me the publicity game. So where did Judith start? Because, I mean, I love this, love this podcast because through six degrees of separations we can sort of hear about people who are no longer with us. But yeah. um, she was a significant publicist in the industry, wasn't she? And, and starting her career where? You she know? started at the Ensemble. Right. Uh, she was a volunteer at the Ensemble Theatre for many years when Rosemary Jones was general manager and Judy Ferris was there and Don Reid and, you know, a great lot of people. And... Uh, Judith became the publicist for the Ensemble Theatre by being a volunteer. Then there were there was sort of an, a bit of a revolution going on inside the Ensemble, and Rosemary Jones and her husband Harold left. Uh, um, 
Judy Ferris left, Don Ree left, and Judith left, and they set up a company called Stagewise, where they did lots of different services for the arts and had a little office at Milsons Point. Rosemary Jones was general manager and so on, uh, and Judith became a freelance publicist and she started doing a lot of small shows with performing lines or uh, other companies back then and then gradually she got the John Frost work and became the Gordon Frost organisation publicist and many others and so when I wasn't working elsewhere I'd go and work in Judith's office uh, on a lot of the shows and tours you know we did Whoopi Goldberg too and we did the Bee Gees and we did all sorts of other things you know amazing amazing times um, and after a while I managed the Footbridge Theatre that was my next job after Nimrod and so uh, I worked for John Frost and Ashley Gordon so that was the early days the of GFO too I guess it yeah. was it yeah. was uh, and I would manage the Footbridge at night and weekends and daytime I'd be working at Judith's office helping her out it was fascinating time we had great shows at the Footbridge at, at the time like Nonsense uh, so mm. I got to know Mike Walsh and, uh, and Sue Farrelly and we had the Resistible Rise uh, we had um, Adrian Mole and so made friends with a whole lot of cast back then. Uh, Gordon Frost put on Corpse with Barry Creighton and Gordon Shader. And Gordon Shader, and that was and James Bean. That was a terrific show that did very well there. Um, were you the uh, Night Mother and uh, Women Behind Bars? Those they early were, Frost shows. They were before I right, got there. Right. And in fact, Mark Morrissey, now agent to the stars, was my assistant manager. He was managing it, and I came in to work alongside him. He was the assistant. Um, and yes, after a year of that, though, as tends to happen, I had an argument with John Frost. <laughs> um, John has probably had arguments with most of the people around the place. I can remember it was a Wednesday matinee and the show wasn't doing that well, but it was a full house. Uh, it was a, I, think, I, think, I think it was a two o'clock matinee, um, not a one o'clock matinee. And we had busloads of school kids in. And it got to be quarter to two and John and Ashley were coming over to jump on the bar and candy bar and so on to, to sell so that the usher and I could then go and let the house in. And um, it got to be quarter to two and they said, yeah, yeah, we're on the way. Don't worry, we're coming. And then it got to be five to two and I rang them. I said, I've got to open the house. And they said, do not open the house. We'll lose money on the candy bar. Do not open the house. And the stage manager was calling me. We've got to start at two o'clock. The, the kids have to get back to school immediately after the show and so on. So it got to be four minutes to, to two. I said, that's it, I've got to open the house. So I opened the house, the one or two ushers that were on that day, and I seated everybody, and the show started about three or four minutes after two. We were very fast in getting everybody in. John and Ashley arrived during that process. So then John said to me, how effing dare you open that house? We lost a fortune on the candy bar today. And I said, John, all these people had to get in because they've got buses waiting. They've got to get back to school, you know, yes. on time. More trouble uh, than you're worth. If you're, that's, yeah. that's right. And he said, well, that's it. You're fired. And I said, no, F you, I quit. And that was the day. <laughs> and so that was my, you know, argument with John Frost. And so then I finished up managing the footbridge and went back to working with Judith Johnson in the daytime and so and certainly, and, and working for GFO. And GFO again, that's yes. right, yeah. So you're working with a whole range of arts organisations in the country, I guess, the Ensemble, um, Opera Australia, STC, the Entertainment Centre, Nimrod, Footbridge, 
that's giving you a whole range of experiences and skills which are going to feed into your eventual role as publicist. Mm, yeah, exactly. I think you learn something from every job you do. And so it was very handy to know the box office side of things, uh, the reconciliation as a theatre manager of all the front of house stuff and so on. I also worked front of house for the entertainment centre for the first three years. It was open in Sydney uh, to save enough money to buy, buy a house and things like that. So I worked in lots of different roles in lots of different companies and seeing how every company worked and making connections because in this business really it's all about networks and mm. people you know mm. uh, so for instance when I went back to working for John Frost he knew me from years before um, and so that made it a little easier to start working with him again yeah I, I think no matter what um, facet of the industry you're working in whether you're a producer or an actor or a publicist or whatever it's good to have if not an experience but an appreciation of what every department does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have interns that come to me from university uh, at various times to learn about publicity. And I say, well, if you're interested in theatre, you should also get uh, an internship with a marketing agency and with um, a production company and so on. So you get to understand how all those different things work, because it will all enrich the work that you're doing in whatever area you are. And you'll understand everybody else's point of view when you might have a problem that you need to sort out. Mm. You worked in television for a while also at SBS. I did, yeah. Um, yeah, I did. I Well, I went to the Australian Film, TV and Radio School first as publicist and uh, that was terrific because I got to understand uh, the way television worked and the way film worked and a bit more about radio and so on. And that took me all over the country too. Every year I would take the, the student films to every capital city all around the place and I'd build up a whole lot of networks of people I know in, in the film film world as well but then after six years I'd become friends with Margaret Pomerantz who was uh, executive producer of the movie show on SBS and their production manager left uh, Margaret and I had produced a TV show together, uh, her from SBS and me from the film school, which was a number of uh, forums of film critics sitting around discussing issues and so on. Uh, and Margaret said to me, well, listen, our production manager's left. Do you want to come and work for, for me at SBS? And I thought, great. I, you know, after six years at the film school, time to move on. So I went to SBS, which was terrific. Uh, first as production manager in the movie show for about 12 months and that was sort of a nuts and bolts sort of job of uh, arranging crews and arranging budgets and all those sort of things um, and it wasn't a creative sort of role and then the publicist for the movie show and movies at SBS moved over to the programming area and the uh, the head of publicity John Woodward said to me well would you like to come and work back in publicity and I was ready to make another move, so I then became publicist for the movie show and movies and a whole lot of other programs, and then uh, took on a bit of news and current affairs uh, publicity and other things, and then um, the head of publicity became head of marketing, and so then I became the, the managing the publicity department at SBS and so on. Um, but things were changing, SBS was becoming corporatising, more corporate, though Margaret and David had left and moved to the ABC. It wasn't as much fun as it used to be. Um, and I was missing the, the live theatre. The live theatre, yeah. And uh, 
Uh, I saw a job advertised as marketing manager at Riverside Theatres of Parramatta and rang Robert Love, who coincidentally had been the general manager when I was working at Nimrod. He, he was general manager of the Seymour Centre. And said, Robert, you know, I'm ready to move back into theatre. Uh, and he said, fabulous, come in for an interview, tick it off. And I got the job as marketing manager at Riverside. And that was terrific, working on a number of different shows. You know, there were about 300 different events at Riverside. It was managing budgets, managing people um, back into the area that I, that I wanted to work in. Uh, and then... Uh, Michelle Guthrie was publicist for High School Musical and that was being produced by three different companies. It was uh, Edgley, no, not Edgley's, it was really useful company. It was oh, Jacobson's, Jacobson's and there was a third partner. I can't remember who the third partner was. Um, and Michelle had to go away for six weeks. Uh, so she asked me to come and work on publicity with her and I did that while I was working at Riverside and it was fun. It reminded me of how much I love working in publicity. And uh, so John Frost heard that I was doing a bit of publicity and came to me and said that his Judith Johnson, his publicist, had died a few years before, a few days before Priscilla Queen of the Desert opened and he had worked with a few other people since and hadn't worked with a publicist he really enjoyed working with. Or connected with, yeah. And came to me and said, listen, if you want to go out on your own, I can give you the national tour of Chicago that's coming up early next year, and you can be the Sydney publicist for Wicked. Susie Howie was doing the Melbourne publicity for Wicked. And I thought, well, I've paid off my mortgage. I don't need a lot of money. I can just work out a home. Um, I'll take the chance. You know, I might fail, it might be a disaster, but then I'll get another job. And that was nearly 12 years ago, and I'm still working from home with a couple of girls working for me uh, as a publicist for the GFO musicals, for a lot of other smaller shows and stuff like that, and it's sort of worked. IP publicity. IP publicity, yeah. We see a lot of performers who uh, have embraced the, the social media and technology in order to, to self-promote. How important do you think that is for an artist? Does it make your job easier if they have an Instagram profile or a huge number of fans on their Facebook page? It, it certainly does uh, because they are well known and uh, you know sometimes they're cast because of those big profiles these days. It is an advantage to all performers when we... Uh, when all the casting is done for a, a musical, uh, we'll send out a survey to each of the performers asking them, you know, uh, do they have any connections with media? Uh, you know, are there interesting things about them? That stuff they, you can use. Stuff I can use yeah. as publicity. And we also ask uh, what their Facebook, Twitter, Instagram handles are and so on because we will give them content that they can spread to their followers when they're cast we'll give them a little tile that says i've been cast in this that gets the word out it spreads uh through all their networks and we do instagram takeovers all those sort of things so if they're spreading the word about that show it makes my job easier and also it will bring up different things that might be a great publicity angle that then i can use later on in a different way right are there courses now which train young people in, in publicity to, to be publicists? 
Um, there are communications degrees with right. a number of universities. So it's not um, specifically It's a not specifically... It's something that you would uh, fall into or suddenly realise, oh, that exists, I might... Yeah, exactly. Follow that. Like I said before, I have interns that have come to me at various times from UTS, from University of New South Wales, from all sorts of other places, uh, and they are people who are doing degrees in media or communications or marketing who want to find out what uh, publicity is about. It might be a small part of their course, but it's not a, a specialty, I think. So they'll come to me and find out more about that. And if they're interested, then I can direct them in different ways to go. My very first intern, uh, Carla, came to me as an intern from UTS. And when she finished a course, I employed her for a couple of days a week until she got a job somewhere else. And... Uh, she was really interested in theatre and she was interested in publicity and when she got another job somewhere else I said I don't really want you to go I can pay you four days a week for the, for the time being and we'll see how we go and then she worked for me for three years full time and then started her own little agency and so on so you know I'm quite proud of the way I've been a mentor to a number of people in the same way that Judith Johnson was a mentor to me. Nurtured publicists of the future. Mm, I hope so. You've worked with some huge names. We touched on the BGs and Whoopi Goldberg earlier in this conversation. Um, recently, you know, I did a Google search and there's photos of you with Angela Lansbury and Mandy Patinkin and David Attenborough. Um, I imagine a good deal of discretion is required in your role as well. You might be exposed to certain behaviour from certain personalities or whatever that... Um uh, yes, absolutely. And not with the big names, with the small names as well. Right. Um, but I don't find that a burden. Um, and I've been very lucky in the big names I have worked with have all been consummate professionals and haven't had any behaviours that have been... Can I ask about two of my favourite? I, yeah. I think they're just fantastic, but I believe that they have been... Prick well, they're no longer with us, but were prickly customers. Lauren Bacall and Rex Harrison. I was working with Judith Johnson during both of those times, and because she was Lauren came out with Sweet Bird of Youth, Sweet Bird of Youth with Colin Friels and, and the rest of the cast were Australian, and, and Rex she, Harrison was Aren't We All? Aren't We All? That's right. Um, I didn't deal with them directly very much. I worked for Judith, and she did all the face-to-face -face stuff. But I can remember her um, many times being frustrated with their behaviour and having to sort of smooth things over and Judith being very proper English woman um, wouldn't give out too much but yes they were both very prickly people Rex Harrison especially um, also naming no names uh, a very famous British actor who uh, Judith worked with she went off to pick him up to go off for uh, an interview once and she came back to the office afterwards ashen-faced and couldn't speak. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, um, I knocked on his door. He opened the door. He was stark naked and said, come in, sit down. Um, you know, I'll get myself ready, blah, blah, blah. And she said, being proper, no, I'll go and wait in the, in the foyer and so on. So, yes, there have been different behaviours over the years that have been difficult but luckily the people I've worked directly with have always been 
fabulous and I don't have any stories like that. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Can you tell me what's the difference between the work conducted by the publicist and that done by the marketing department? Basically, publicity is all the stuff you get for free and marketing is all the stuff you pay for. Right, okay. So a marketing agency will look after all the paid advertising. They'll look after uh, the... Um, you know, TV ads, all that sort of stuff. They'll look after the printing of uh, the flyers that are around the place and all that sort of stuff. As a publicist, I'm dealing with the stuff you're not paying for. So convincing newspapers that they want to interview this actor for that particular supplement or this radio program, you really want to interview this actor because blah, 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 uh, or have a performance by the cast of this, this on this television show and so on. All the stuff that isn't really paid for. There are sort of blurrings in a way of ticket promotions. Uh, you might have an association with a media partner in a Uh, on a radio station or newspaper arranging ticket promotions I'm arranging ticket promotions with websites and all that sort of stuff which is an unpaid sort of thing but then these days with social media that's a blurring somewhere in the middle Um, I'm arranging interviews on websites that people put up on their social media profiles and that sort of stuff but uh, sometimes these days influencers so-called influencers want payment for their posts and so on. So that's sort of moving towards the marketing side, whereas as a publicist, I'm inviting influencers who you don't have to pay for to come to opening nights and previews to spread the word about that show and so on. So that's sort of the uh, the fine line. Things you pay for are things you don't. Do you have an opening night ritual? Is there something that you... I guess you're kept fairly much on your toes on an opening night to make sure everything goes smoothly, but... I am. Um, I don't have. A, I don't really have any rituals, no. I don't sort of... No superstitions? No or... superstitions. I don't throw salt over my, uh, you know, uh, right shoulder or wear a particular pair of underwear or anything like that, no. I'm not a very superstitious person at all. Uh, every opening night is different and busy, and I'm always very relieved when they're over. <laughs> a big drink at the end of the night. Mm. What, what's the most bizarre event you've had to promote? Uh, a cycling race, right. I would have to say. Uh, one of the producers I worked with, I work with, lateral events, are the people who brought out people like Sir David Attenborough, uh, Brian Cox, Bill Bryson, those sort of people who've done tours. Um, where they are in a theatre either being interviewed or talking themselves and doing a whole presentation. So I've been the publicist for those national tours and arranging publicity for them. That particular producer produces La Tap, which is the Australian version of uh, Tour de France. I'm a very unsporting sort of person, but uh, the the head of uh, lateral events, Simon Baggs, came to me and said, well, listen, SBS was supposed to do the publicity for this in the the first year, but they didn't really do anything. Can you help us out? So for a couple of years, I've been the LATAP publicist, sending out media releases about cycling and going... 
going to this event in Jindabyne to send out the media release about who's won and arranging for journalists to come down. Gary Maddox, who's the film uh, reviewer and writer for Sydney Morning Herald, coincidentally was a cycling fanatic so thankfully he came down to La Tap and wrote about La Tap and that was an easy thing because I knew about him I knew him from the film world uh, but yes doing a cycling race publicity I suppose is one of the most bizarre things ah showbiz ah showbiz, showbiz. we'll grab a buck wherever we can <laughs> now how are you going to amuse yourself during this time of isolation uh, well, luckily I've got a huge pile of books that I've been given over the years. I never normally get time to read. Uh, I love doing a couple of holidays a year. There's the annual trip to Broadway to see as many shows as I can. Uh, and then another ho- overseas holiday to sit in the beach and read books. I haven't got through all those books yet, so I have everything from all the murder mysteries I love to uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's autobiography uh, to a whole lot of others that are sitting in the corner waiting to read. I have a pile of DVDs. I love murder mysteries, you know, all those BBC murder mysteries on the ABC on a Friday and Sunday nights. The Agatha Christie's, Mm -hmm. yep. Uh, I've got a pile of those sitting in the corner waiting to read and movies that I've wanted to watch. As you can see, all my bookshelves here, I have a couple of thousand DVDs. Haven't seen them all. They're going to be getting an airing over the next couple of months. Every afternoon, I plan on uh, ringing a number of people and doing a bit of a roster of keeping in touch with a number of people. Uh, my husband Taro goes for a walk every morning for an hour so hopefully while we're not locked in and have to stay home I'm doing that walk every morning um, and I don't know we'll see what happens really. Hopefully it, six months will be the maximum. I think after that time I'll be going spear and climbing the walls. It's a time for it to amuse ourselves. What about a book? Have you ever thought of writing a book, The Life of a Publicist? I haven't. Uh, When I was young, I wanted to write a murder mystery. And for some bizarre reason, that was one of the things David Berthold said in his speech to me when I was leaving as chairman of Griffin. Uh, Hope you get time to write your murder mystery. Um, And yeah, I haven't sort of thought of writing. I've, you know, I wrote, I was a reviewer for the Sunday Telegraph for 10 years. Whenever people were off sick or on holidays and stuff, I would review theatre and movies and all that sort of stuff. So I'm used to writing a lot, but I'm not really sure that I'm a fiction writer or an autobiographical writer. I don't really think... I suppose I have had an interesting career and I feel blessed in everything I've done, but I just don't know that it's worthwhile writing about. Or the murder mystery, perhaps. A murder mystery, perhaps. So, I don't know. If after that six months it continues, I might be resorting to writing. You may have committed murder. (laughs) Could be, yeah. Fipsy, thank you so much for sharing your uh, your insight and your uh, career journey with us today. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Peter. It's been enjoyable. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages Podcast is released every Thursday and occasionally there's a bonus episode dropped in for good measure. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends. Your enthusiasm is much appreciated. As are many of the emails and messages I receive communicating your enjoyment of the episodes. Thank you. You couldn't go one step further, though, could you? Take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a short review. You can do this through the podcast iTunes app where you access this episode. It helps to get series promoted and received. 
Until next time, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to episode 121 of Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well and catch you next time.